If you have a first to fifth grader who wants to go to kids' church, now's the time. I'll say it again. My said this other times. My uh, my pastor back home growing up, Doug Sager, he used to say, "Boy, if you can't preach after that, something's wrong with you." <laughs> well, we'll find out if something's wrong with me. <clears throat> We're in between uh, series. We finished Second Timothy last week, and uh, we go into our missions conference these next two weeks. And then beginning October 4th, we're actually going to go into a series from there that will take us through the end of the year, Lord willing, called One Anothering, Living in the Church. And we will be looking at various one another passages uh, in, in the New Testament. Uh, so I'm excited for that. This gets planned, by the way. So this week, tomorrow, I will leave uh, for a few days of personal planning and prayer uh, to look forward and, and seek the Lord in the preaching schedule for 2021. So this preaching schedule this year was set last September And it seems that in a time of COVID, in a time of distancing, it is helpful to remember what it is the Lord wants us to be as the church. That we ought to be, that we need to find creative ways to be people who don't just show up and go home. Show up and sit down and hear a sermon and go home and never have any interaction with one another. And so I think that this is actually coming at a very good time uh, for us to think about Uh, Also, uh, with regard to the missions conference, you know we take our praise offering. So as you have been giving regularly online and in the kiosks, uh, you will be able to do that. As a reminder, the first $10,000 of that offering, our goal is $36,000. The first $10,000 of it, Lord willing, will go to help Mark and Roxanne Shingleton in South Africa. Uh, They need a new vehicle. And it For those of us who've been there and ridden around all the places that they go, uh, you will know how important reliable transportation is where they're at. Uh, The next 6,000 of that 36, Lord willing, will go to uh, Daniel and Amy Rodas, who have planted a Spanish-speaking church on the near north side. They meet at Castleview Church, and Amy grew up here, for those who didn't know, and uh, we have supported them for a while, and there's just a shortfall in their support, and we're hoping that this helps uh, them. The next 10,000, as you'll remember, um, uh, thieves took advantage of COVID to break in and do all kinds of damage, and we had to replace uh, windows and doors and uh, computers. And so that next 10,000 is actually to help us recover from that theft. And then the final 10,000, Lord willing, we will just exceed it, uh, is to begin to make plans for a chairlift of some sort to get, be able to get people to the second floor who either have no capacity to do stairs or really struggle with stairs. We want to do that. We want people, we want the children and our children's. We don't want children to be hindered from being part of Gray Road Christian School because they can't be on the second floor or part of our student ministry because they can't get to the second floor. And so we're going to be working toward that. So that's what the offering of praise uh, is going for. So uh, that's probably enough of announcements. Um, James chapter 4. In just a moment, we're going to read the first 10 verses. On Wednesday nights up in the student ministry, a few different men are 
speaking about truths that they believe that teenagers need to know where they're at. Maybe they're truths that they wish they had known when they were teens, and now they are sharing that insight with our students. And as I, I think it's a wonderful idea, and I, and I think that as I think about what I wish I had known when I was a teenager as a Christian, what I wish I had known, what I wish somebody would have taught me, wish I wish somebody would have discipled me and showed me this reality, it would be what we are looking at today. It is the centrality of the heart in the Christian life. Now, when we talk about the heart, we're not talking about the organ that pumps blood. Uh, in the Bible, the heart is the control center of life. It is the core of who we are. So I've played uh, various video games with my children over the years. Uh, I prefer sports games. They don't, so I'm not any good at them. Uh, but there are these games where you're a character and you're running through a land, you know, defeating enemies and all these kinds of things. And here's what I know, is that if I put the controller down, that character's not going anywhere. It's not going to pick up the sword. It's not going to take a step. It's not going to open a door. It's not going to do anything. And life is like that. Our hearts are kind of like that controller, that our hearts drive all that happens. Our heart is the control center of life. So Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart. Guard your heart is what that means. Why? Because the heart is like the fountainhead of all of the issues of life. All the issues of life flow from it. And Jesus affirms that in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So from the heart come evil thoughts. From the heart come evil words false witness, slander. From the heart come evil deeds, adultery, theft, sexual immorality. You see, the Christian life is not merely a life of externals, saying right things, doing right things. It is fundamentally internal. It's about the heart. And the saying of the right things and the doing of the right things is the fruit of a heart that is different. This is why as parents, of course, we teach our children to do as they're told, to obey. We want to see them obeying. But our goal is not simply to conform our children's behavior to a particular standard and for them to think that all is okay as long as I'm conformed to a particular standard. We want to see their hearts changed. So then, if you're not a Christian, just to clarify, becoming a Christian is not about putting off a certain set of activities or deeds or words and putting on different ones. It's not just stopping bad habits and starting good ones. It's not just about stopping the sleeping in on Sunday morning and starting the going to church. That's not what becoming a Christian is. 
Because the fact is, our hearts are wrong. We have hearts, the Bible says, of stone. They're unmoved by the truth of God. They're unmoved by the gospel. They're unable to change. But God in His grace comes and changes us. He, the Bible says, removes a heart of stone and places in us a heart of flesh, takes out a heart that is cold to Jesus and puts one in that is warmed and wooed by the Savior, the Savior who took the punishment for our sins so we could be forgiven, who rose on the third day conquering death. That change of heart is the fundamental idea of what it means to become a Christian, getting new life, having a new heart. Just Thursday night, several elders and deacons were at the bedside of Steve Myers, and we, uh, he wasn't having, it wasn't easy for him to make conversation or follow everything, so I asked if we could sing a hymn, and he said, you may, which is very Steve Myers, yes, you may. And so we sang, it is well with my soul, and for most of it, He was moving and couldn't get comfortable, which was the case all the time. But when we got to the second verse, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, the next phrases he was mouthing is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. This man who could not get comfortable, who could not put a sentence together, who knows that he is headed to the end of his life, says, praise the Lord. you know the only thing that accounts for that? A different heart. It's the only thing that can account for that kind of language at that kind of moment. And when God changes our hearts, you see His Word and the Gospel changes in our ears. It goes from religious talk that we can just dismiss to a message we cannot live without. How do you respond to the message of Jesus' death and resurrection? If you're not a Christian, I'd love to talk to you about that. But the centrality of the heart in the Christian life is crucial to understand. Why do we do what we do? Why did you respond that way to your boss? Why did, why did I do that? When you get this down, you know what you can never say again? I used to say this all the time when I was younger. Boy, I didn't mean to say that. Like you say something really mean, right? And then you say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> well, I think Jesus would say otherwise. Because Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what we're going to look at here in James chapter 4 is the centrality of the heart, particularly when it comes to conflict. Okay? James's letter is filled with issues of conflict. You'll remember in chapter 1, he tells these scattered, suffering Christians, uh, be Quick to listen, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, points to issues. Chapter 2, he speaks about the partiality that's going on in the churches with regard to the rich being favored over the poor. This is problematic. It's divisive. 
after verse 10, in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says, don't speak against one another. In chapter 5, he talks about the rich taking advantage of the poor, not paying the wages that they deserve. Later in chapter 5, he says, don't come into judgment. Don't grumble against one another. And what's at the heart of all that? What's at the heart of all that conflict? What's at the heart of interpersonal conflict in your life? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, this text answers it. Let's read it together. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. And then we will pray and then we'll get on. The Spirit says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to, to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Lord, give us eyes to see the truth of these words, these precious words that you have given to us. We pray that the insight with which they were written will be the insight that we see by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you will remind us what we have known and have maybe forgotten, that you will strengthen the knowledge of what we already know, or you will teach us what we did not know before coming to this text. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. What is at the heart of conflict? At the heart of conflict are the hearts of those in conflict. That's what James launches into. At the heart of conflict are the hearts of those in conflict. Let's think about what James says here. First of all, the heart of conflict is knowable. It is knowable. Where does conflict come from? Now, that's a question that stumps a lot of people, isn't it? Have you ever asked someone, why, why were you all fighting? Well, I don't even know. I don't even know. Why is it that at every job you get, you're always involved in conflict? I don't know. In your marriage, why do simple decisions tend to lead to World War III? I don't know. Why do conversations with your parents often turn into fights? Or why do conversations with your children often turn into fights? I don't know. 
Why do you constantly argue with teachers and other students at school? I don't know. Why is it that you fight with your brother or your sister over who gets to play the game or who gets the last cookie or who gets to sit in the front seat? I don't know. Well, James says that what we don't know is actually knowable. That this question, see, uh, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, more literally is translated, where do they come from? Where do quarrels come from? Where do fights come from? What is their origin story? And then he goes on. He says, isn't it this? In other words, he says, this is where they come from. Isn't this where they come from? He's not wondering. He's not posing the question and then asking, giving you a possible answer. He's not saying, where do quarrels and fights come from? Uh, is it from the fact that passions are at war within you? No, no, no. He, in the second question, he is answering the first question. The first question, where do, where do quarrels come from? The second one, don't they come from inside you? It's like asking, where did you get, why, did you, why did you get this speeding ticket? Were you speeding again? The second question is not a genuine question. It's, a, it's an answer to the first question, isn't it? That's, that's what James is doing. Now, I'm making a deal of this and pointing it out because, quite honestly, just that fact, I think, needs to be underlined because there are problems when we answer why were we in conflict with I don't know. The problem is, is that it makes it easy to assume that conflict happened because of something outside of me. I'm in conflict with you because of something outside of me. The problem is someone else. The problem is the circumstance. The problem is that I'm really tired. The problem is that I had a long day at work. The problem is that my workload at school is overwhelming. The problem is the stress from these rebellious children. The, the problem is that I'm sick. The problem is just the general curse of sin. Isn't that the right theological answer? Well, of course it is, but James doesn't give that answer. Why are you in conflicts? He doesn't say, isn't it because of something outside of you making you fight? Do you know that nobody can make you fight? Did you know that? Nobody can make you go for the throat in the argument? Nobody can make you angry? Did you know that? He said, here's the issue. The issue is what's inside. And you can know it. James will not let us just wiggle out of this and just shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know, I'm just always in conflict. I don't know, I guess just workplaces in America aren't very friendly and I'm just always in conflict. I don't know. My wife's kind of a grump. I don't know. My kids are awful. I don't know. My neighbors are picky about where the branches of the tree hang. I don't know. No, the heart of conflict is knowable. And the heart of conflict is the heart. But not just any heart, it is the heart gone wrong. So the second thing to notice is that the heart of conflict is sinful. It's not only knowable, it is sinful. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? These passions are not ordinary desires. The, the, the Greek word here is hedone, 
which we get the, the word hedonism from. It is the relentless pursuit of pleasing yourself. These are self-focused desires. These are desires aimed at getting what I want. That's what causes conflict. In fact, Titus, Paul writes to Titus, he says something very similar. It's interesting. Listen. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's the word. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Did you notice what the pleasures lead to? Notice what being enslaved to, the, to self-focused pleasures leads to. Malice, envy, and then what? Hated by others and hating one another. When we are slaves driven to get what we want at any cost, the outcome will be conflict. It will be. Because you and your contrarian ideas will not stand in my way. I will roll right over you to get what I want. Now, to be clear, these quarrels and fights in verse 1 are not ordinary disagreements. These are heated. In fact, the word for quarrels is actually a military word for, for war. All right? It, it, we may discuss and disagree about a variety of things. We may discuss and disagree about theology or politics or business practices or education or any number of things. Quarrels and fights break out when the heat is turned up because self-focused hearts pick up a disagreement and say, I am going to pound away at you until I get what I want. That's where the quarreling and the fighting comes from. Uh, growing up, my brother and I, uh, who's younger, his name's Andy, and uh, not this Andy, though you know we have similar hair color and similar recession of hair, but... Andy and Andy and I would ride the bus home, and every day for a period of time, we would race from the bus stop to the house, because the goal every day was to be the first one to the house so that you could get in and get to the highest, value, highest valued assets in the house at that moment, the remote control to the big TV. All right? So we would race from, from the bus stop to the house, and we would get in, and one of us would go for the... Now, it was just about every day, as often as we would race, we would also disagree about who got there first. And now, when we would disagree about who got there first, can I tell you what we did not do? We did not sit down at the kitchen table and have a discussion about why I think I arrived first. And then Andy gave his side. This is why he arrived first. No, no, no. What we would do is we would set the remote control nicely on the coffee table. We would get down on the floor, and we would wrestle until somebody gave up. Because love wasn't the goal. Winning was the goal. And that's what conflict is. My heart wants what I want. Your heart wants what you want. And we are going to wrestle 
until someone gives up. Because our hearts are not set on loving the other. Our hearts are on pleasing self, serving self, exalting self, winning, getting what I want. This is why, by the way, in many marriages, it can get so heated and go on for so long, and, you say, and then you look at one another, and somebody says, well, what happened? Well, I don't even know how this thing started. Do you know why that you say that? Because the circumstance in which the conflict happened is irrelevant to the conflict. It is the self-focused desires that drive us into conflict. But James goes on. This self-focused heart is not simply a horizontal problem. In fact, it's not even primarily a horizontal problem. It's not primarily an issue of sin between one human being and another human being. The heart of con- at the heart of conflict is a vertical problem. The problem in conflict horizontally is because I'm not in right relationship at that moment with the Lord vertically. Now, he, gives, he tells us this. He goes on. He goes on. So, we have the heart of conflict described here in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But then look how, the, look how it switches. We go from the horizontal immediately to the vertical. You do not have because you do not ask. The self, sometimes self-focused hearts don't care at all to pray about this situation. I'm just going to get what I get, what I want. But even when prayer is involved, look what happens. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Lord, please change my wife. Make her the wife that I need, that I want. What a... What a, what a Just an insane way to pray. To ask God to be your errand boy. To make people so that they serve you better. You see, the self-focused heart doesn't want to bend to God's will and say with the Lord Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. No, no, no. The the self-focused heart wants God to bend to my will. It's interesting, the self-focused heart never prays, Lord, change me. Remake me. Create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a right spirit. The self-focused heart sees the speck in everybody else's eye and prays God take care of that speck and that speck and that speck and that speck and is blind to the log in its own eye. It's a vertical problem, but still he goes on. The heart, a self-focused heart is unfaithful to God. Look at the beginning of verse 4. You adulterous people. Now that seems to come out of nowhere, but in the Old Testament, when the prophets were speaking to, the, to Israel about their unfaithfulness to God, the imagery of adultery was a common one. 
I mean, to put it in as clean a language as I can say, the prophets were often saying, well, you'll just, you'll just go be with anybody, won't you? That's what the prophets were saying. You're going to go lie under that tree and under that tree and under that tree. You'll just go anywhere. Look, anywhere except to the one who is your husband, to God. Focusing on self is cheating on God. When we're loving ourselves with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are not loving God. And then he goes on, a self-focused heart puts us at odds. It makes us a friend to the world and an enemy of God. That's what the rest of verse 4 says. You see, friends, human conflict is actually just a symptom of a much deeper problem that we are not primarily concerned with honoring God. We are primarily concerned with being honored and getting what I want. I've counseled many couples who are in constant conflict and they'll come in and one of the maybe I mean one of the common themes that often comes up is that there's some kind of struggle in communication. All right? Communication. I mean, people struggle with communication in their marriage. People struggle with communication in their friendships. People struggle in their communication uh, with their parents or with their children or with their boss or with whoever, you know, their coworkers. I've found, as I have counseled couples, that the struggle in communication, I'm going to say 99% because I don't want to use absolute language, but I would if I was going to almost always, if not always, is not a lack of skill in communication. Forming words, expressing ideas, is never the problem. The ability to do that. The ability to understand the person who is speaking. Understand their words. Do you know what I found over and over and over again that causes problems in communication? The heart. This is what causes it. Their mouths work fine, but their heart's all wrong. I mean, in essence, in the middle of communicating, their hearts say something like this, I want to be heard, but I don't want to listen. I want to be understood by you, but I don't want to understand you. And even when I do listen and do seek to understand, it's really so that it will serve my purposes in making my argument here. I don't, I don't so much want to uh, uh, have your way. I want to have my way. When we peel back the part in our conflict that is ours, we will find a heart that is aimed not at honoring God, not at serving others, but aimed at self. So what are we to do? Is there any hope? Yes, there is. Isn't that good? If you just put a period there and go home, we'll all go home dragging our feet, right? We'll put our tail between our legs. We'll say, well, whew. (laughs) But there's hope. Because the heart of conflict is not only knowable and sinful, it is changeable. It is changeable. James doesn't stop with what's wrong. He goes on and he shows us actually what change will look like in verses 7 to 10. I won't read it again, but let's just 
think what he does is he lays out several things, and he doesn't do it like a buffet. You don't take the plate of your life through, and I'm going to say, well, I'll do that, but I'm going to hold off on that one, and I'll take this one, but not that one. No, no, no. This is more like taking antibiotics. You've got to take the whole prescription if it's going to work, all right? So, what is it? First, submit to God. Submit to God. Isn't this the very thing the self-focused heart needs is to no longer be in submission to itself, but in submission to God. That my desires, even natural desires, even good desires are not ultimate. God is the rightful ruler of my life. Then he says, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Boy, you know the devil loves it when we get caught up in serving ourselves. He loves it. He loves when our hearts are focused on ourselves. And he comes along and he's like your biggest cheerleader. You're focusing on yourself? Well, let me cheer you along. And he'll whisper things like this. Oh, you can't give up on this. You deserve it. You need this. You must have it. And our hearts are already focused on ourselves. So you're saying, like, that sounds like a good idea. And James is saying, no, 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 resist. Push back. Take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Those are words that are risen up against the knowledge of God. Then he says, draw near to God. Now, drawing near to God isn't just a sense of nearness. It's not just praying. Drawing near, especially in the Old Testament, had to do with drawing near to listen to God. So, Isaiah 34, Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. If you imagine that a family's in a busy crowd and, or at a huge uh, gathering of various families, and I as a parent see that one of my children is behaving wrongly. I may call them, and I, or they may catch my eye, and I'll just give them, you know, the motion to come over. And, what are, and they draw near to me, and I come near to them, and I speak the words that need to correct whatever's going on. That's the idea here. Because otherwise, the the self-focused heart doesn't want to draw near to God for anything unless God's going to serve my purposes. Draw near, near and listen. Listen as the Heavenly Father bends down in His Word and speaks. If you love your life, if you save it, you'll lose it. Consider others more important than yourself. Look to the interests of others and not to your own. Die to yourself. And then he says, repent. Verses, uh, verse nine, oh, verse, the second half of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Godly sorrow leading to repentance. A change of mind from laughing to mourning. From joy to gloom that leads to change of mind, change of heart. Interestingly, part of that repentance addresses the problem of looking faithful while not actually being faithful. When he says you should 
you should, he calls them double-minded. It calls back to the image of adultery, actually, in verse 4. He's saying, don't just look like you're faithful to God. Look like you're faithful to God. I mean, I want you to imagine that you're talking to a friend who's in the throes of adultery. Are you really going to sit down with them and say, now, what you need to do is arrange your life so that it looks like you're faithful to your wife again? That's ridiculous. That's not repentance at all. No, you say, you must be faithful, not simply look faithful. Stop being double-minded. And finally, humble yourself. It's almost just a restatement of the first of the path in verse 7, submit yourselves, two sides of the same coin. So here's the path, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, and repent and humble yourselves. But here's the problem. We have this wonderful path, but what about the power to change? I mean, can we actually do this? Can we change our own hearts? The Bible says no. I mean, first of all, our hearts are, we can't even fully understand our own heart. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Secondly, even if we were to see it rightly, we would be powerless to change. Jeremiah 13 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. If you can change your skin color, you can change your heart just by willing it. So what are we to do? Is there any power to change? The answer is yes. And it comes in the hinge that's right in the middle of this passage. Because as you saw, we started in verse 1 and ramped up with the problem is in your heart. It's not just a horizontal problem. It is a vertical problem. And it goes all the way through. And then beginning in verse 7, here's the path to change. But right in verse 6, this little phrase, He gives more grace. There's the key to change, right there. He gives more grace. Grace brings forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His Grace, so all of the conflict, all of the heat, all of the anger, all that you have been doing, grace is sufficient to forgive that. But grace is also the power to change. Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age which means we can't walk around saying, oh, I'm just a person who's always in conflict. I'm just kind of argumentative. Oh, friend, not according to grace, you're not. Grace changes the argumentative one. Grace changes the fighter. Grace takes a heart that's focused on itself and powerfully reorients it to focus on God. Grace takes the proud, trash-talking heart that walks into a room with boxing gloves on, ready to start swinging, and transforms it into a humble heart that seeks God's way and not its own. 
Grace will make us give us a heart that considers others more important than itself. A heart that looks to the interests of others. A heart that wants to listen more than it wants to speak. The heart of conflict is changeable by grace. So that you can submit to God. How can you do that? Grace. How can you resist the devil? Grace. How can you draw near to God? Grace. How can you repent? Grace. How can you humble yourself? Grace. At the heart of conflict are the hearts of those in conflict. But it can all change by grace. Now listen. You know the, 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 the warning sign on, on all your pill bottles. Here's the warning sign. Is to hear all of that and to wish that that other person in your life had heard this sermon. That that other person had heard about their heart in conflict. If that's kind of where you're at, and you haven't been with me completely x-rayed to the soul by this text, when we start saying, man, it's like elbowing the husband, right? Elbowing the wife. That's actually the self-focused heart coming out. When we hear all of this, and rather than examine ourselves, we wish other people would examine themselves so that my life would have a little less conflict in it. I mean, the next time you're in conflict with a family member, a friend, a sibling, a spouse, a co-worker, another Christian, don't start by looking to the circumstances. Don't start by looking at the possible motives of other people. Start by looking at yourself. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Maybe you had a conflict this morning on your way to church. We all laugh that off, don't we? We just laugh and say, ha, 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 that's what Sunday mornings are, blah, blah, blah. You know, we always tend to do that, and we just throw it at the devil's feet, and then we're just going to go about our business. Well, the devil had his moment. Now we're going to go worship. No, no, no. I think what the Lord would want us to do is to say, what was I wanting? What was I wanting that I wasn't getting? What is it that I just had to have and so desperately that I was willing to go after the person who kept me from it? Ask God to show you your heart because the heart of conflict is knowable. Ask Him to show your heart because the heart of conflict is sinful. But praise God by His grace, it's changeable. It's changeable. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for the goodness and grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ, that you have removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. How often we tend to focus on ourselves, on our way, on our desires in a relationship, our desires for a given day, our desires for our job, our desires for our children, our desires for our spouse, our desires in any number of places. And certainly, Lord, we recognize that there are desires that are good, that are right, but help us to see the danger of seeing any desire as ultimate as something I must have, I need to have, if it is not something that you have promised. 
God, I pray that you will examine our hearts, that you will help us recount the last conflict we had, that you will open up our eyes to see where we sinfully just wanted what we wanted. And so we grumbled, so we complained, so we fought, so we quarreled because we wanted our way. Oh God, keep us, keep us from that. Help us by your grace to submit to you, to resist the devil, to draw near and listen to your word and to repent when we hear it and humble ourselves in your sight. We pray all of this in the matchless and wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.